Welcome to the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health Podcast, where we talk about the clinical and practical issues that face those working in the mental health industry. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Uh, my name is Erin Mullen O'Bailey. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at Cognitive Behavior Institute. And my co-host, Dr. Kevin Caridad, who is the CEO and owner at Cognitive Behavior Institute. This week, we are joined uh, by a guest, Dr. David Gamble. Uh, he is a medical doctor and a British Heart Foundation cardiology research fellow based in Aberdeen, Scotland. He has a particular interest in cardiovascular disease in women, specifically uh, with what's called broken heart syndrome. So Dr. Gamble, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, can we start off by sharing a little bit about broken heart syndrome with our listeners? Yeah, no, certainly. Well, thank you very much for inviting me to um, come and talk with you guys. Um, looking forward to it. Hopefully um, we can get a nice little bit of uh, discussion, you know, back, back and forth. So, yeah, that's a, that's a great place to start. So broken heart syndrome, um, the medical term for it is Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Um, essentially, it's a stress-induced heart problem. Um, the reason I say stress-induced heart problem is because about two-thirds of people have a trigger, um, okay? So it's either an emotional trigger, so that might be something like uh, a sudden bereavement, um, some other um, emotional kind of taxing event, and that's kind of where the broken heart syndrome um, kind of uh, colloquial name comes from. But it can also be a physical trigger, so sudden acute pain, for example, um, someone might be in a road traffic accident, broken leg, something like that. So it's typically a stressor. Um, and then shortly afterwards, these people, um, these, these patients develop, uh, they can be very unwell, often develop chest pain, shortness of breath. Typically, they're rushed into hospital with what at the time looks like they're having a heart attack. And, and in the early stages, it's certainly treated and investigated uh, in the most part like a, like a heart attack. But as we do some more kind of detailed cardiac investigations, you can you, you realize it's not a heart attack. Uh, it's um, it's this condition, Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. And, and cardiomyopathy is just a, just a posh word, really, that means heart pumping problem. Um, and when you image the hearts of, of these patients, it's the, it's the main pumping chamber of the heart that is suddenly stopped working. Um, and its pumping capacity is quite uh, significantly sort of reduced. So that's kind of in a, in, a, in a bit of a nutshell, that's kind of what the condition sort of, sort of looks like. Just because my background in nursing a little bit, when you talk about the main heart, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about the ventricles. And with regard to the, that aspect of it is, it, is there inflammation involved or is it pure just the ability to pump out the blood? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. So what I'm typically talking about the, the left ventricles. So that's the main pumping chamber of the heart to the rest of the body. But it can affect, you, you know, you've got two sides of the heart, two bits, one pumps your lungs, one pumps the rest of your body. Both sides can actually be affected, uh, we, we sort of now understand. Um, you don't necessarily see inflammation. Um, you often, if you do an MRI scan, you often see quite a lot of edema. So edema is just like water, you know, within the heart muscle itself. Um, there, there's one thing we relate to inflammation. One thing we know is that these, these, or there's good evidence that these people often have a sort of kind of global inflammatory um, sort of process going on. Um, so yeah. 
you know, I used to hear many times from grandparents that, you know, they died of a broken heart. I, I just thought it was a thing, but uh, meaning back in the day that that's how they explained it. But it actually, you're saying it either would be a, a, tr a very traumatic or physical pain or emotional yeah. pain can create yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Abs absolutely. And it, and people die from it. People die from it all the time. Um, you know, it, it has a similar mortality or there's good evidence to suggest it has a similar mortality to people who've had a heart attack. So, you know, it's, it is quite, um, quite a significant condition. And is it more prevalent in women than men or what does the statistics mm. look like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. By a ratio of about nine to one. So oh, wow. typically it's about 90% women, um, typically postmenopausal women. Um, why that is, we're, we're not, there's not entirely sure, may well have something to do with kind of estrogen deprivation postmenopausally and, and how that can affect the heart's response to some of the kind of nervous um, stimulation. But yeah, no, absolutely, predominantly, uh, predominantly women. Is there anything in particular about race or ethnicity uh, that fit in with this? Have you noticed or have you guys? Mm. That's, a, that's, that's a really good question, actually. Um, there's I mean, it was, it's a condition that was originally described in Japan. Um, and there, there's not a huge amount of evidence or, or studies that are starting to kind of link race or ethnicity um, to it. It, it. It's predominantly Caucasian women. Um, but it's one of those that I, I would be slightly, I wouldn't want to say that for certain because there's just very little studies done in black women, in, in, in Asian women, in Asian men, you, 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 if you see what I mean. So sure. whether that's a function of just that's where the studies, the populations, the studies have been done on um, or, or, or not, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. Gotcha. Okay. And can you talk a little bit about the medical and non-medical treatments uh, about about that treat broken heart syndrome? Mm, uh, another very good question. So there aren't really any treatments. Um, and when I say that, I mean, these, like I said, these people can be very unwell, um, you know, come into, come into hospital uh, very unwell. They can be in ITU fighting for their lives. And, and during that acute period, there are lots of things that we can do to, you know, to, to help them through that period. They can have a lot of um, funny heart rhythms. So, you know, um, things like that. And there's things you can do to, to help with that. But there's no treatments that have been proven to help kind of long-term, if you see what I mean, to, to either help people's hearts recover, recover to a greater degree, to make people feel better. So there actually aren't any treatments. Um, if I hear you right, a lot of the focus is getting through the, the very beginning stages of the acute mm -hmm. care, whether it be with diuretics, other cardiac related medications or cardiovascular stabilizing uh, meds. But once be, if you make it af after that, it's kind of just time and seeing what happens. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So it's not like a lot of other things in cardiology where we know the pills work. In, you know, so if you had a heart attack and uh, that's damaged the pumping capacity of your heart, we know that there are lots of drugs that are really effective at helping people live longer, helping helping their hearts, um, uh, you know, hearts recover, helping people feel better. None of that exists for, for Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Um, so, and that's part of the study that we're doing, it, it, you know, is that there's reasonable evidence that pills probably don't help in Takotsubo cardiomyopathy, um, or at least there's no, you know, big studies that you can kind of hang your hat on, um, which is why we're kind of looking at 
to different things, exercise being one intervention and, and a, a cognitive behavioral therapy based um, kind of life course as the other one. You know, interesting, because when you bring up cognitive behavioral therapy, obviously there's this component of that. But I also know that a lot of the research exercise and just general emotional mood is improved by the exercise. So how do you mm. tease those two out? Can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, um, you're absolutely you're absolutely right, because um, these are quite interesting interventions, I think. And I suppose the other thing I, I would say is I, I'm. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a medical doctor, I know about cardiology, I don't profess to know all, all there is to know about cognitive behavioral therapy. So actually, it'll be quite interesting to get kind of you guys and, and your sort of thoughts. I was going to say, well, isn't this a match made in heaven? Then? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, you know, I think I think uh, I can certainly learn something. So you, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, we know that exercise helps people's hearts um, after lots of other heart conditions. So after a heart attack, certainly in the UK on the NHS, you would be enrolled into a cardiac rehab program and that's essentially a gentle exercise program. Um, now we're comparing that with um, you know, CBT life course and, and you're right, uh, there's good evidence isn't there that exercise helps people's mental health in all sorts of different um, ways. How we tease those two things out uh, is a very good question. And, you know, I think we'll have to see what the kind of data looks like um, for one. Um, we, we, one thing we're doing is collecting baseline activity of everyone. So if they, if they, get, this, if they get the CBT interven uh, intervention, we give them a, a baseline activity monitor to see what their activity monitors are like before and after the intervention. So we'll probably use that to try and adjust for um, any changes in, in kind of activity. But um, yeah, I don't, I, uh, I'm sort of waffling a little bit. I don't, uh, uh, I don't quite know how we'll, we'll reconcile that, but we'll, you know, when we, I think we need to have a look at the data and just kind of um, think about that a bit more. Well, I think it makes sense. I think just from my own knowledge of the literature here in the U.S., at least, that CBT, uh, in addition to standard medical treatment in many diagnoses, whether it be chronic pain, migraines, mm. cancer treatment, uh, you know, uh, GI disease, whether it be colitis or Crohn's, tend to do better. Uh, mm. and, and who knows if it's the mood that allows you to follow your medical regimen better or there's a combination of both. Yeah. Um, or even if you look at functional neurologic disorders, when you can treat medical problems, I'm not really sure, but there's this connection to some degree that yeah. is uh, that has been shown to be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, with this the sort of CBT course that we're doing, you know, part of that is just it will um, if it shows a benefit, I suspect some of that will be to do with, as you say, just people's lives changing in a, in a positive way, getting out more, engaging with, um, you know, their, their, their lives a bit more. I suspect their activity levels will go up as well. Um, you know, like you say, engaging them with medical services and anything else that they need to do. It's, it's you know, it's, it, it's of course, it's a real driver for all of that. So, yeah, no, I totally agree. I suspect if we see a benefit, some of the benefit will come from those things. And have you guys seen at all any correlation between the severity of post-acute, meaning the, the initial phase of this injury, uh, and how someone is, I guess, classified severity afterwards, how they tend to do with each one of these interventions? Any anecdotal, uh, how there is severity a predictor after if you make it past uh, the initial phase? So, I mean, it's, 
it's because the study's ongoing i'm slightly reluctant to talk about any sort of like results that we've looked at yet simply okay, because we won't mention it um no no not at all it's it just simply because um uh you you know we've not recruited everyone and right. uh and um, understood you don't want to need to have a little kind of look at it in a bit more bit more detail really okay oops i was muted there uh, when do you anticipate uh, having some results from the study? Is this a is this an ongoing research? Do you, do you anticipate it wrapping up in the next several months or years? So yeah, I hopefully we'll have we'll have everyone recruited within the next year. Okay. So like like I said, you know this this condition is, is reasonably common actually. You know it affects about sort of up to about 6% of women who present with what looks like a heart attack will have this condition. So uh, it's common, it's underdiagnosed. We're, we're a sort of specialist center for it here. So we're particularly good at picking it up. So hopefully we'll, um, we'll have everyone recruited in, uh, in the next year. Um, and yeah, we'll have to, you know, see, see what the results look like. I'm quite, you know, quite excited by it actually, you know, as I said, um, in cardiology, we're very good at giving people pills. And we're very good at, um, you know, doing uh, interventions, you know, stents and things like that. But um, actually, I, you know, I like this study because I think the, the cognitive behavioral therapy part of it is quite a, quite a forward thinking um, intervention. Um, and yeah, it has, it has relevance to everyone, I think. So you say you specialize in that area. Have you ever noticed when someone's misdiagnosed about the etiology of the cardiomyopathy of this heart injury, uh, are the outcomes any different or it doesn't? How does that impact? Yeah, I suppose because it, it, we're getting better and better at diagnosing it, that's for sure. To get a firm diagnosis, you often need a cardiac MRI, um, you, you know, to make sure that there's not some, some other heart issue that, that's perhaps kind of mimicking it that you're, that you're missing. I suppose it's like anything, really. If you get a, a misdiagnosis, is is never a good thing. Um, and it's... You, you, diagnoses come with often come with treatments, often come with appointments, often come with a trajectory associated with that diagnosis. So uh, there's no firm evidence to, to, to say one way or another, but, but you know, like any, the key to medicine in my mind is you need to give people a diagnosis. Um, and then once you've done that, you can then with the best evidence that you've got kind of, you know, take things forward, have a treatment plan for them, uh, you know, the appropriate follow-up plan where, where they're seen by the right sorts of people. And history sounds important, right? Some type of emotional or physical pain had occurred prior to mm. is it a specific time frame that that typically occurs. Yeah, it's often very, very acutely before, and that kind of fits with. So, as I said, like you know, this condition was discovered in the mid to late nineties in Japan. So it's not like heart attacks that we, we've, no, you know, kind of when the first heart attack was was described hundreds and hundreds of years ago. You know, we just don't have that body of time to have built up kind of an understanding but one of the one of the sort of mechanisms that this is thought to, to occur by is people have a, a sudden stressor that you know uh, leads to a release of all sorts of stress hormones um, particularly catecholamines and then they have a direct effect on the heart either leading to constriction of blood vessels changing it changes in some of the sort of metabolic effects of the the heart myocytes reducing its function so typically the trigger comes soon before the symptoms if you see what i mean because it's sure. 
kind of similar to why individuals early after a weekend or early on have the higher catecholamine levels in the morning and tend to have higher heart attacks. So that's kind of that correlation. Yeah, yeah, ex exactly. And actually, one of the things that we're we're doing is we're also looking at people's um, uh, cortisol levels um, early morning. So you, you like to say cortisol is released um, peaks in the first hour of waking and um, your cortisol awakening response. We're measuring that in all of these people before and after um, okay. these interventions just to see. I think it'd be really interesting to see you know, does, does the CBT program change people's cortisol production? I think that'd be a really interesting thing to look at because, because actually is there a benefit from um, cognitive behavioral therapy in that if it's reducing people, you know, some of these stress hormones and things are, are the cause of the condition in the first place. Is it a program that's, that's modifying those, the, the levels of those hormones? And is it that that could be responsible for, for helping heart recovery? Um, I think it'll be interesting. I don't know, do you guys, have you ever seen any kind of studies that looked at CBT and um, maybe cortisol or, um, you know, catecholamine release? Well, I think it's pretty common for measurement of cortisol levels uh, as far as an indicator of, of what's happening with the stress response and over time and do those mm -hmm. decrease. I think there's a lot of that in behavioral health here in the U.S. Uh, I don't, there may be catecholamines. It hasn't been, that's not uh, something that I'm aware of, the degree to which that catecholamines are specifically looked at. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but th that's an interesting perspective, I think, that uh, all of us to look at. This has been great. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, no, absolutely. Thank you uh, very much, Dr. Gimbel, for spending the time here with us. We look forward to uh, reading about your research once it's completed in the coming years and uh, hopefully maybe have you back in the future to talk about your findings. That would be, uh, be fine by me. No, thank you very much for inviting me on. And um, yeah, thanks guys for taking the time. Sure. And thanks so much to our listeners for this week's episode of The Barrier Breakdown. We hope that you stay safe and healthy. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Barrier Breakdown, Disrupting Mental Health. Listeners can find all of our episodes on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Podbean. For more information and to learn about upcoming continuing education events, check out our website, cbicenterforeducation.com, our Facebook pages, Cognitive Behavior Institute, and CBI Center for Education, as well as our Instagram at Cognitive Behavior Institute, and our Twitter at CBI underscore Pittsburgh. Don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe. We hope you'll tune in for another guest next week.